0: And um, uh, we're going to be continuing our study of the divine institutions this morning. We have uh, been looking at volition, the very fact that God gave us the ability to choose and with that the responsibility for those decisions. We have that and, and uh, it's under attack. All four of these divine institutions are under attack today by Satan through uh, Marxism, Communism, uh, the far left, whatever you want to call it, all four of them are under, uh, are under attack, because they don't want you to believe you're responsible for your decisions. They want you to come to believe that you can blame anything on anybody, on somebody else, or something. And so, rather than taking responsibility, it's uh, they call it environmental determinism. It is, prob- it is part of the uh, tenets of evolution. And uh, what evolutionists believe that that you're just a product of your environment, and actually you're a product of your decisions, but they don't want you to believe that. So they attack uh, volition. The second thing they attack is marriage, and uh, it's under massive attack and has been for a long time. And right now you have people that are publicly saying that they want to do away with all of the uh, the structure. They say they want to burn down America. And they're not talking about physically, although some are trying that. They're talking about spiritually. Spiritually burning down America involves going after these divine institutions. You're not responsible for your decision. Somebody else is. Marriage is no good. It's just a document, da-da-da-da-da, and on and on. And the next thing they go after is the family. The family is, uh, you know, they say it takes a village. No, it takes a Parents is what, <laughs> what it takes. It takes leaders within the home. And so whenever they go after that and and uh, uh, try to do away with the family unit, that's, that's just hardcore Marxism is all it is. They want to take your children when they're very small. They want to train. They don't want to train, and they want to indoctrinate them in their way of doing things, and then they want to uh, uh, turn them into little puppets of the state. That basically is... What it is, they don't want your kids to think for themselves, and they know that at an early age they're very moldable, and so as a result, they're uh, they're careful uh, to try and get control of that. They used to do it under wraps, and in the last year or two, that's just come out in the open. They've come out and said this is what they're trying to do. They also want to do away with nationalism. Uh, they do try to do that in the call for unity. We just want to be united. Strangely enough the millennial kingdom will be united under the headship of Jesus Christ but it will have nations and also the eternal state where we'll be living one day. The new heavens and the new earth is united under the almighty God and yet There's nations in the eternal state. So God has established these things, and uh, nations should learn how to work together instead of fight with each other. That's true, but you don't do it by a centralized government that's going to call all the shots all over the world. That's a mistake. They've been working toward that end for a long time, establishing a world court. The United Nations started with a League of Nations back with Wilson in the early uh, 1900s. That failed miserably. They got the United Nations going again. That is, uh, it's a failure, but it's still around. And so they're, they're trying to uh, turn this into a one world government. And that's just setting the stage for the Antichrist because that's the way he thinks. That's what he wants. He wants the whole world under his power. And he really thinks he's entitled to it because he becomes indwelt by Satan about the middle part of the tribulation. And uh, he's going to try to take over one way or another. Now, why is it important to do this? Well... Churches need to teach what what is being taught here. Uh, It can be taught in different ways, different methods, different uh, communicators, but they need to teach the importance of individual responsibility and accountability. They need to teach the importance of marriage. They need to teach the importance of family and the importance of national interest. They need to teach those things, and uh, they're not. So we are trying to provide some information for people to be able to look at and say this is what the Word of God says. If you don't believe the Bible is the Bible, this doesn't make any difference. If you do believe the Bible is the Bible and is the perfect revelation from God, which is reasonable to believe when you understand all the background, when you believe that and you say what he says is important, thus saith the Lord is how we should live our life. So, let's take a few minutes for prayer. Today, we're starting the third divine institution called the family. Let's take a few moments for prayer and present ourselves before God's throne. Uh, You are a priest to God. As a believer in Jesus Christ, you're a priest. So, you have the ability to understand. You have ability to go directly before the throne. You have the invitation, actually, to ask that the Holy Spirit teach you what God wants, what the Father wants you to know. So with all those blessings, uh, we're supposed to put them to use. We're supposed to use what we have been given. So let's use that. Go in front of the throne and ask for enlightenment this morning. Let's pray. Father, again, we're blessed to be able to come together in what is still called a nation. Father, we thank you for it. We thank you for the founding principles. Father, we thank you for the fact that, uh, uh, that, that we're just able to come together in freedom. Father, it's such a blessing that much of the world, much of the Christians don't uh, get to participate in. And yet we just take it so much for granted until it's threatened a little bit. Father, we need to really appreciate it because it is uh, precious to be able to have this freedom to assemble ourselves together, to open up your word, and, Father, to be able to learn from it. We know that what you have given to us is powerful for the destruction of fortresses. So let us learn it in order to use it in your service. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the family. The family, uh, first of all, the family... A family, by definition, if we start asking what it is, it involves a plurality of individuals. Okay, there's more than one in a family who are related to one another either genetically or legally. Now, I included legally in there because an adopted child becomes legally part of that family, so they become part of that family even though genetically they they may not be related to each other. So that's basically what a family is. Let's start with the basic meaning of it. Let's go back to the beginning. What has God set up and established? The word family is most frequently used to simply describe a group of people consisting of a father, a mother, and children. Uh, As they marry others and produce children, they establish a separate family, but they're still part of their original family. Now this is the the doctrine of the blatantly obvious, I guess you could state, but sometimes if we don't go back and get definitions of what these things are, biblical definitions, then the, uh, the devil gets hold of it and he starts twisting things around and uh, the next thing you know, we've got uh, a mess of conclusions because they've redefined the words. So the word family, uh, by its simplest meaning, its earliest usages, that's basically... Basically, what I was talking about. Now, there's not really any commands concerning how to function as a family. What there are, other than to honor the Lord, but rather there are principles that are taught for individual members that let a family function in honor before God. Hey, we have studied in the marriage relationship the role of the husband, the role of the wife. Uh, there, there, there are roles for children that they should follow. Uh, but the whole thing with the family, your family should be one that honors the Lord. I um, remember this uh, passage in Joshua twenty-four, fifteen. A lot of people have that little little plaque on their door. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So there's the leader of that household, Joshua, the leader of that family, and he said, as the leader of the family, this is what we're going to do. This is the determination that has been made. And they're supposed to let a family function in honor before the Lord God Almighty. So, there's not really any that says family do this, family do that, family do this. But there are four individuals that make up the family. Now, there exists the freedom to function morally. Okay, this freedom. Freedom to function morally is important, and morality is defined as the Bible does it, using different methods by di- in different societies to have maximum impact for the Lord. Family structures in different parts of the world just look different. They work different. They function different is what they do. So here are these family structures, and they ha- they have that freedom to do it. Okay, It doesn't say that this is the way that that daddy has to do it. Daddy should be the leader of the house and, and the things that go with that. But there are different ways that families in different parts of the world function. And as long as they are not disobedient to God, then they have a, a wide variety of ways in which they can function as far as bringing in... Uh, you know, bringing home the bacon is what they used to say. Now it's bringing home the veggies, I guess, is the way that it's supposed to be. But bringing home the, uh, you know, putting, uh, we used to say, meat and potatoes on the table. I mean, some of our old comments that that we made, and it was the father's role, but that has expanded. It's not that the mother can't do things like that. It's how does the family work. And many times you have situations where where dad is not able to work. He, he doesn't have the ability to work anymore. And then you pick up the slack. So it's, whenever things are adjusted to fit the circumstances dealt to the family, then if you function honorably before the Lord, that's what counts. So there, there exists a freedom to function morally using different methods. Now, what was God's initial plan for families? You go all the way back into Genesis, in the first chapter, in verse 26, says, then God said, Elohim said, let us, that's interesting, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, let us, it's plural in there, make man, Adam, which is obvious, has an obvious meaning here of mankind, mankind, no definite article is found with this, not make the man. But he's talking about mankind in general whenever he starts out in Genesis 1 in our image. And then it says according to our likeness. We could go into the Hebrew and the exegete it and the Zelim and demuth and the image and the likeness and the various things that is there. But what it is is we're made in the image of God. Humanity is made in the image of God. And let them, we know that that word adam refers to humanity as a collective singular because look at the them here, which is clearly a third plural. Third person plural indicating mankind. Let them, mankind, rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the Earth, okay what is that this is Genesis one we We came into being to to have dominion over the animal kingdom okay we 're not just another animal what is it What is the implications of verses like this? Uh, he says, and God created the man ha Adam in the Hebrew He created the man, so he 's going to explain how he did that in chapter two, but this is just the the general layout of where God is going, typical Hebrew fashion, summary, and then start giving you the details. So he says, and God created the man in his own image. See, it doesn't argue with uh, bringing the woman from the man's rib in the next chapter. There's no conflict there at all. He created the man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him... Male and female. He created them. Mankind. Male and female. Now you can argue with God all you want to. But this is the way he did it. This goes back to creative activity. And it is the prerogative of God. So if if you don't like being a man. Too bad. If the chromosomes come out that way. And the genetics come out that way. You. That's. God created you. And. Uh, I I find it interesting some people that believe God made a mistake have an argument with God to begin with. He, He doesn't make mistakes. That's not who he is. Male and female, he created... Ba-ra, them. We're looking at creation out of nothing here. Like in Genesis 1-1, the beginning, Elohim created out of nothing the heavens and the earth. So when he made them, we're talking about the souls of mankind, the immaterial part of mankind. Notice there's a distinction between male and female. And it's, it's not just a genetic distinction. It is a distinction of, of the way you view things. And God blessed them. Barak. Love that word. Baraka is a word that means blessing. Barak is the verb form of that word. And he blessed them. Then he said to them, be fruitful. Now here is the overall picture given to the man and the woman in chapter 2. But what did he say to them? Five commands follow. When he says, and he said to them, be fruitful. Okay. We, we pretty well know what be fruitful is produce a lot of fruit and multiply and fill. That's the third command. Fill what? The earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So he created the man, and out of the man, he's going to bring forth the woman. And he's and their their job is to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Don't just sit there in the Garden of Eden and eat kumquats all day long. Get You know, take care of this. He put the man in the garden we find in chapter 2 to tend it, to keep it. And shamar, as the word, means to guard, to guard it. So he put him in there to guard it. And here is subdue the earth. It, isn't it interesting we somehow lose sight of the fact that man was put in here to subdue the earth and to rule over all the animals. And somehow some, some uh, evolutionists right now think that, that mankind is a cancer on the earth. We're the problem. And so, us being the problem, we need to be removed. And if we are removed, then that leaves the world to all the animals and they can live as they should live. So, God's but what is God's plan? Okay? Be fruitful, multiply. What happens when man, woman multiply? They create a family, right? They have a family already. But the part of it that says multiply, have children, have offspring. How many? Is the earth full yet? Some people would believe you the the world's getting overfilled. But it's uh, <laughs> I just came back through Texas yesterday. <laughs> What's it filled with? Grass <laughs> cattle. <laughs> I mean when you come back out of out of Texas down west of San Antonio, um uh, Austin area, and you come back up through the hill country, it is mile after mile after mile after mile of a whole lot of empty space <laughs> that's out there. At one time, back when I was uh, a kid, you could take all the population of the earth and put them in the state of Washington. And they'd have nine square feet per person. I told that to my dad, and he said, well, that's not very much room. I thought, well, that wasn't the point, Dad. But (laughs) anyway, (laughs) the point is there's a whole lot of room out here for, uh, for us to exist. We are not overpopulating the earth. I heard this morning that if we put in something like uh, a new nuclear reactor a day until 2050, we'll have, we'll have a whole different uh, energy supply and won't need to burn fossil fuels. And it just creates a few more problems. Some of the problems is we don't have the, the fuel to fuel nuclear reactors here. We have to buy it from other people that are not our friends. Anyway, God's initial plan was for families to fill the earth. The early families were not perfect. And that's taught by Cain and Abel. Genesis chapter 4, we all know that story. And, uh, you know, God wasn't happy with with Cain's sacrifice. And uh, he was happy with Abel's sacrifice. And Cain got very mad at it. It's quite a chapter to go through. But the early families were not perfect. So uh, Cain and Abel is just the picture of that in chapter 4. Chapter 5 of Genesis tells us they were multiplying, though they weren't filling the earth yet, but they were indeed multiplying. And they became so evil that God administered discipline to the entire earth, saving only Noah and his family. Uh, Genesis 6 through 9 and 1 Peter 3.20, which interestingly enough says God saved eight souls through the water. So there wasn't a whole lot of other people that survived, actually none. According to scripture, inspired of God, revealed by himself that has to be perfect. Only eight people got through that flood in the in the whole earth. This is a life-size replica of uh, the ark, which uh, this one's located up in Kentucky. And it's kind of got a, a picture a rendering to give some idea and perspective of how big that thing is. When you start looking as 450 feet long, a football field and a half. That's a pretty good, I don't know if you want to call it a boat. If we got any Navy guys in here, it's a ship, is what they would call it, and get upset if you called it a boat. It was a barge type of thing, and it was designed for just what it was getting ready to do. Now, <clears throat> that's what happened to the, the families. The families of the earth got so immoral and so decadent that God did away with them. After the flood, out of those 8 people came a whole batch of people, the descendants of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And we read about that in Genesis chapter 10. And that that's the passage that when people start reading the Bible, Genesis 5 is is oftentimes where they quit because Adam beget Seth, and Seth beget Enish, and Enish be- beget Mahalalel, and it goes on from there for ten generations. And so, they get tired of all the Okay, But you look at it from another way, and they were fulfilling God's command, right? To fulfill to the earth. Genesis chapter 10 is another list of genealogies. Some people say, well, I'll jump to the New Testament and read that, and you go to Matthew 1. And Adam begat Seth, and Seth begat Enosh. and they pick it up again, and it kind of tells us there is an important, uh, the importance placed on a lineage that uh, and will track its way to Christ. He is true humanity, he is the last Adam. Uh, you have a picture of that with that those lineages being put there. You have a picture also of the fact that he is of the line of Jesse, line of David, line of Solomon. That that's who he is. That he is the Messiah in the line of kings of the Jews. But Ham, and Japheth, and it's it's interesting that it's been pretty common knowledge for a long time that the uh, Japhethites. Uh, basically moved up toward Europe into the European area after the Tower of Babel. And the Hamitic groups basically moved toward Africa in that area and also to the east. And the Shemites stayed pretty well in that central uh, area around uh, Israel. So the descendants of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And the Bible is the only book that gives us any idea of how people got to different parts of the globe, carrying the same major stories. And that's the, the only idea that any, and the Bible's the only reference book that's even got anything like that. Table of Nations is unique to the Bible. Now, <clears throat> like before the flood, the families began to follow the paths of evil. So God confused their languages And he scattered them by family to different parts of the earth. That's Genesis 11. Now we know that after the flood, in Genesis chapter 9, he told Noah, he said, you see that sign in the sky, that rainbow? I will never again do to the earth what I did. Oh, devil, when God says, I will never again, or I will, the devil goes after that, doesn't he? Because he will try to use that amongst the, the humanity, Here on earth, and he'll try to use that and say, Well, God's not gonna wipe us all out again. Hey, let's eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And so, what did God say? I don't have to flood the whole world to bring discipline on the whole world. So, what he did was he scattered them by family to different parts of the earth, and they went out and they had different languages. And uh, my, con- my belief is that, uh, is that uh, India was the leftovers. They put all the leftover languages because when you go into the uh, Germanic group and the, the European groups, those are pretty similar languages whenever you get into Africa. Those are really, in a lot of ways, very similar languages. They've been taught French and Spanish and some, some other things in uh, Africa. When, when you get to India, Uh, The Bible Society has over 200 translations of Indian languages and dialects, and they've been estimated at 20,000 languages. So it's kind of like all the leftovers ended up there in India. Because you can go from one state, how would you like to go from Oklahoma to Arkansas? (laughs) Of course, some people say we speak different languages anyway. But if they really spoke a different language with a different alphabet and pronounced differently, that's what you have in India. You can go from Kerala state in the south, and you have Malayalam, spelled the same forwards and backwards, Malayalam, so you can't mix all that up. And you go to the next state north, and you end up with Canada, K-A-N-N-A-D-A. And you end up with a whole different language. You end up with, with alphabets that look vastly different from one another. And these are all in the su- on the same subcontinent of, of India. Uh, it's fascinating to, to look at languages. And who did that? God did. How did he divide the languages? By family. That's how he divided it. And they went to the remotest parts of the earth. Now, God's always been interested in blessing families. Whenever he gave the promise to Abraham... In Genesis chapter 12, he says, Now the Lord said to Abram, before his name was changed, Go forth from your country. He was in Ur of the Chaldees, up in the Tigris-Euphrates River Valley, up in modern-day Iraq. He said, Leave here and from your relatives. Not just go forth from your country, leave your relatives behind as we study, we find out his father, Terah, was an idolater. So he said, get out of there. Okay? Here is a Abraham came from an idolatrous family. So he says, go out of there from the land and from your relatives and from your father's house. Now we know why. To the land that I will show you. Now this is an act of faith. One, One beautiful act of faith. He didn't tell him where he was going. He just said, Leave. You leave, and I'll show you. So Abram left by faith, looking toward the land that God would provide him. And I will make you. Now, notice Abraham had conditions. Often they teach the Abrahamic covenant as an unconditional covenant. But before the covenant was ratified, it was conditional. What if Abram had not left his country from the land of his relatives to a place? He wouldn't have had the covenant, would he? It was a conditional covenant until he uh, complied and then it became unconditional to his descendants. Now his descendants had to choose whether or not to participate. And they participated in that covenant by faith in the Lord, just like Abraham did in Genesis 15, 6. He says, you do this... And I'll make you a great nation. And I will bless you. And wouldn't you like to have one of those? I will bless you. Actually, you do. And I will make your name great. Very few people on this planet have not heard of Abraham. And so you, you shall be a blessing. You notice that we're blessed to be a blessing? You see what he just said to Abraham. Oftentimes, we want to be blessed so we can have fun. We want to be blessed so we can have peace. We want to be blessed so we can feel secure. We want to to be blessed for all the wrong reasons. When God blesses us, it's so we can be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. I will bless those who bless you. This has not changed since God gave this this promise to Abraham. And the one who curses you, I will curse. So even today, when people curse Israel, they are on the wrong side of history. You can figure it out really fast. Are the Jews perfect? No, they're not. They've still not accepted their Messiah as a nation. So no, they're anything but perfect. In fact, they're just like us. But (laughs) he says, there's something special about them. And God has made them really as as a, a test for all the nations. But He said, "Stay, Abraham. The one who curses you, I will curse, and in you, all the families here's our word of the earth shall be blessed. So from the line of Abraham, through the seed of Abraham, all of the families of the earth have what is real blessing." available to them so god has always been interested in blessing families that's what he loves to do he loves to bless your family the key principle here is that the father is to take the lead in teaching his children to honor god now this is the way god set up the roles it's not saying the the mother is to to not be involved or to have a major part even it's not saying that, but the father is the one is to take the is to take the lead now the father if he gives the responsibility to the to his wife the major responsibility should be there for support should be there for help should be there for backup should be there but the what is described here we're going to Gen- to Gen- not Genesis Deuteronomy six. Uh, next, what is described is that, the, that uh, the main principle is that daddies are supposed to take the lead and mom is to, to support the process of teaching the children. Now, it <clears throat> doesn't always happen that way, quite clearly. And if the husband's not taking the lead, mom needs to take the lead. That's what needs to happen. Because what is important is that our children learn about the Lord God Almighty and who He is. That's the important principle. Now, there's a sequence. See, when the fathers don't d- fulfill their designed role, then they're then they're the one that bears the discipline. And oftentimes, it's uh, <laughs> their kids bring it bring it back to him because they're not being properly trained. Now, <clears throat> what do we have in Deuteronomy six? Go ahead and turn there with me. Deuteronomy 6. Deuteronomy 6 is the importance of the great commandment in the family in the first three verses. Now I know this was given to the Jews and some people will look at this and Good friend, pastors of mine, they say, we're not under the Mosaic Law, and therefore you don't need to pay any attention to it. I beg to differ with them, as there's some principles found in the Mosaic Law that, that transcend cultures, dispensations, and everything else. And there are principles taught here that are transcendent of culture and dispensations. And we're going to look at them. It says, this is the commandment. Commandment is the word uh, mitzvah. Mitzvah is a, a normal word translated as commandment. It has emphasis on who's, the, who's got the authority to, to issue the command. This is the commandment. The statutes, and that's the word kok, C-H-O-Q. And that looks at specifics. Specific details of what's involved in various commandments. It says, and the judgments. Judgment is mishpat which is uh, part of who God is is righteousness and justice the judgments the way things should be handled the way things should be dealt with which Yahweh your Elohim has commanded me context is Moses to teach you for what purpose that you might do them in the land where you are going over to possess it. Deuteronomy is Moses' final sermons. He's putting them all together. He's going to review the Ten Commandments. He's going to go back over it. He's going to have one group of Jews on one mountain, another group on another mountain, and one's going, blessed are those who, and the others are going, cursed are those who. So he is teaching them and making them stand there and go over that law over and over and over again, uh, hoping they won't forget it. But he says, teach them to do them so that you and your son and your grandson, okay, you, your son, and your grandson, three generations, might do what? Fear the Lord, your God. Now fear, sometimes we... We back that off as respect, and indeed, it involves respect. But sometimes there is a healthy fear of the Lord. Quite clearly, the fear of the Lord's the beginning of knowledge. Who is he? is he? Is He worth being afraid of? If you're not uh, ob- obedient, yeah, you better be concerned about that. What do we have? What do we have lacking in the U.S. of A. in the world today? <clears throat> there is no fear of god people think he's pretty well impotent a lot of them say he doesn't even exist and so there there is no fear there is a good healthy fear of the lord god almighty and he says you need to teach him about that because his justice is real he will exact it he poured it out on his son But if you don't take advantage of that through faith in his son then you could bear the result of his wrath. And he's warned the Jews about it. He warned them all through history. He displayed it last week. We saw 70 AD which was just a smattering of his wrath being poured out. He just turned the evil people loose that wanted to destroy him. That's all he did. He he just pulled back the protective hand for a short period of time. Look what happened to him. So, He says, So that you and your son, your grandson, might fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and commandments, which I command you, how long? All the days of your life. Not just next week or next month. And that your days may be prolonged. He's saying to have a good, healthy fear of the Lord and keep his statutes. You'll have a longer life on this, this planet as a, re, as a result of that. They're extenuating circumstances. He's talking about all things being normal. We know frequently all things are not normal. Uh, I think a lot of God-fearing people have died in wars to protect Israel over the course of, of uh, the centuries. Uh, just like a lot of God-fearing people have, have died in protection of this country and some other um, Christian countries. O Israel, now this is not a commandment for the church, not trying to make it that, but the principles are being established, and we can learn from the principles. He says, O Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it. Moses telling him, listen to what I'm saying, be careful to do it. Why? That it may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, just as the Lord the God of your fathers, Elohim of Eve, the God of your fathers has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Now the first principle we're going to pull out of this chapter. The greatest commandment was to be understood and passed on to future generations. So they may be blessed by God. Why bother to teach your children well? You want to pass on... The fear of the Lord, respect for God, respect for his commandments. And when it says, thus saith the Lord, you need to pass that respect on to your son and your grandson. So this is about families, and it also concerns grandparents, does it not? I know sometimes we have to be careful as grandparents because, you know, we, we might offend our children, but our grandchildren need to hear it. So what do we do about that? We pray for wisdom. See, why, is, why don't we know everything to begin with? Because then we wouldn't pray for wisdom, would we? <laughs> if we were omniscient, why would you pray for wisdom if you were omniscient? You wouldn't need to. But since we're not, God says, I want you to stay in touch with me. Call me frequently. There's no long distance charges here. Call me and, and ask for wisdom. Because we know James 1, he gives to all men generously and without reproach. It's like you're going to ring up God and he says, You're bothering me, I don't have time. He never says that. It's always, Hello, how are you doing? I'm here. Now, he won't often answer your requests for wisdom until exactly the moment you need it. But if you're praying for opportunities to communicate to your grandchildren... As, as we all should be. You're, you're praying for those opportunities to build into your children and your grandchildren and to others. God will provide those opportunities. That's what he is in the business of doing. Pass it on to future generations. So they too may be blessed by God. See, it's not a, well I'm going to straighten them out and fix them up and all this other stuff. Do you want them blessed by God? Well that should be our, our motivation. Now, the importance of instruction in the family is in Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 to 9. And it says, hear, O Israel. Now, this is a cal imperative of Shema, the word for listen or hear, the Hebrew word. In fact, the Jews call this the Shema. It is the greatest commandment. It is called Shema because it says to hear. When the Jews put phylacteries around their neck and... Fulfill some of these things. Oftentimes, the verse that is written down is they're not just little ornaments, they're designed to be teaching tools. And inside that phylactery is this verse. Okay, what does it say? Oh, Israel, the Lord is our God, Yahweh, our Elohim, the Lord, Yahweh. Akkad. Akkad means one. He's one. It's one God, not multiple gods, not three different gods. He's, he has three persons, if you will, but he's one. It's exactly who he is. And, okay, there's a statement of fact. There's a statement of thus says the Lord, if you will. And you shall love the Lord your God. That's what you do about it. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Now, some say, well, Jesus made a mistake when he quoted this verse because he added mind into it. He said heart, soul, mind, and strength. He had four parts. But what he was doing in that time frame, 1,500 years after Moses, the Jews viewed man as being put together with heart, soul, and might, strength, physical strength. But the Greeks had added in, and hence taught a lot of the Jews, heart, soul, mind, and strength. And they differentiated. So that it, Jesus helps us understand fully this verse. It is exactly what he does. He didn't make a mistake. He knew exactly what he was doing. He basically says, love God with every part of your being. Every single part of it. Heart, soul, mind, strength. If you want to add a fifth, sixth, and seventh dimension, love him with those two. That's what, you're, that's what we're called to do. All these words which I, Moses, am commanding you today shall be on your heart. Why is it important to put them at the center of your being? On your heart. The center of your being. Well, let's see. Seem like Jesus said out of the heart of man proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, and everything else. You know, on the inside of us is uh, a sin nature and that sin nature is not good. And so you want to replace those things that are in there with things that should be. These things which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You need to make them part of the center of your being. It's not really the organ that pumps blood he's talking about here. It's the center of, your, of activity. That's what cardia and lave, the Hebrew word, both, both are referring to. He says, shall be on your heart. I want them at the center of your being. And you shall teach them diligently. Look at this verse. You shall teach them diligently to your sons. Now who is Moses preaching to? (laughs) It's not the choir he's talking to here. He's preaching to the sons of Israel. And he's addressing the dads. And he says, And you shall teach them diligently to your sons. And shall talk of them... When you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up, did he cover every part of the day here? When you're inside, when you're outside, when you're lying down, you're resting, and when you get up. Talk to them before bed. Talk to them when they get up during the day. And you shall bind them as a sign on your hand. And they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house. And on your gates. So if you want to put a cross on your house. Go ahead and do it. If you want to put up a, a Christian picture. Or a reminder or whatever it is. Put them in your house. Put them all. That's the principle here. That is the principle that is being clearly taught. See, parents were to use multiple methods to impart God's word to their children. In other words, if somebody came into, into your house, would, would they know you're a Christian? Would there be enough evidence to convict you? If you found yourself in a rock as a Christian, they'd make this thing, this symbol in Arabic that looks like an N. On the front of your door. And that marked you as a Christian. Yeah. You may have seen some of the t shirts from Voice of the Martyrs that says, I am in. And it looks like that letter N, that's the symbol for a Christian in Iraq. And what they would do is they would go mark those houses, oftentimes give them a certain period of time to convert to uh Islam or die. Them and their whole family. Now <clears throat> What would we do in a place like that? We we probably, we won't know. We can say, well, I do this and I do that. When it comes down to it, what would we do? But those people have already made a decision what they're going to do. When the authorities bust through the door, or those without authority, claiming authority, bust through the door to do them harm. They're not going to deny the Lord. So here, they use... The Lord is saying use multiple methods to teach it to your children. If you wear a Christian t-shirt, we've got so many methods right now it's ridiculous. We've got almost so many that they become so commonplace that we don't pay attention to them anymore. But the one thing about this nation that's becoming, that's becoming uh, farther into darkness than ever is people are going to It'll draw attention again. It sure will. You wear something that says One Nation Under God on on your shirt or something. Wear an American flag. Oklahoma, you're pretty good. Texas, you're pretty good. You get some other places, they don't like you wearing stuff like that. They don't like you wearing Christian shirts that uh, say one way, and it's Jesus. They don't like you wearing things like that. But he says use multiple methods to impart God's word to their children. So he's telling the Jews, when you go into this land, He said, be sure that you teach your kids. Teach them well. You want them to be blessed just like you have been blessed. You wouldn't be going in this land if you hadn't been blessed. You want them to be blessed? They need to follow in the steps of the Lord. And here he gives the, the hickey to the parents to teach them. Not to schools, not to anybody else. It goes right to the family. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, again for your goodness, your grace, your mercy, and love. Thank you once again for these principles of of divine establishment, Father, what you have set up. The family is so important and so beautiful, and Father, we know that you have called us to be good family members. You've called us to be uh, leaders. You've called us to be teachers. Father, you've called us to proclaim your word to the remotest parts of the earth. And Father, I pray that not just to the remotest parts, but right here in our own community and neighborhood, that we would live a life that is pleasing to you. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.